Digital Audio Health by Cymatrax. Welcome to the Rhonda Grant Show with your host, Rhonda Grant. If you believe that there is more to life than what you see right now and you want to find out more, listen in as her guests share their journey and their extraordinary experiences. Now, here is your host, Rhonda Grant. Welcome to the Rhonda Grant Show. Sometimes the universe has a way of placing people or obstacles in your path to help guide and direct you on your mission. Listen in as we discover the path my guest has traveled. Has he been inspired by a calling, crafted his journey, or a bit of both? I invite you to embrace the conversation and to use it to help you to recognize if this is happening in your life. Our guest today is Hi Conrad, who is a best-selling author and television writer. Hi has made a career out of murder earning the Independent Press Award for Best Mystery, the NYC Big Book Award for Best Mystery Series, a Scribe Award for Best Novel, and garnering three Edgar nominations from the Mystery Writers of America. Along the way, he developed a horde of popular games and interactive films, hundreds of short stories, and a dozen books of solvable mysteries. Published in over 15 languages. Hi is best known for eight seasons as writer, co-executive producer for the groundbreaking TV series, Monk. Other shows include White Collar and The Good Cop. Welcome to the Rhonda Grant Show. Hi. Hello, Rhonda. It's great to meet you. Yes, it's great to meet you too. You know, a lot of people wonder how writers began writing, who encouraged them. And how old were you when you started writing? Um, I think I've always had a bit of a storyteller in me. Um, I actually began working professionally when I was 14 as an actor, as a stage actor. And Mm -hmm. uh, I basically took a train up to New York City, um, skipped school for a day and auditioned for a show. And... uh, they said, come back with a guardian. And uh, so I, my mother came back with me the next time. And I toured the country uh, doing the uh, nas- first national tour of Oliver and played one of the um, uh, one of Fagan's boys. So I, I actually was acting until I was in my late 20s. And, but always, I think, had a s- storytelling spirit. And mm-hmm. uh, then... At that point, I was doing uh, summer stock uh, in uh, Pennsylvania, and I wrote, uh, came up with the idea for a musical. I was foolish enough to write the book Music and Lyrics, which is, you know, a big, big job. And uh, it ran off, off, off Broadway for, for a little while, um, but I made some connections there, and um, enough people liked it, and enough people liked me, that that began my career as a writer. Um, so, you know, I guess I didn't come into writing until a little bit later, although my mother said that she always knew that I would be a writer. I guess there was, a um, something about, uh, the way my mind worked that she thought it would work well, uh, being a writer. Mm-hmm. And do you find that, um, 
if you're an artist, you're an artist. Like a lot of artists are multi-talented. Um, you know, I've always loved theater. And um, uh, it wasn't until I got into writing, though, that I got, um, and I, I could make a living as a stage actor between gigs in New York and, um, um, you know, road companies and summer stock. Um, but I never really took the big step um, into something that could really, um, you know, pay the bills and uh, um, uh, get my name out there until I turn in uh, until I turn to writing. But I do think that there is a creative. I think everybody has a creative force, but some oh, yes. people just some people just nurture it, or uh, it gets nurtured, or um, it's something that they really. Uh, love doing. I mean, I have a lot of friends who can't imagine being a writer and sitting by yourself for hours every day and trying to second guess yourself um, yeah. all all the time. Um, but uh, that's you know what I've been doing for a long time now. Yes, I. You know, you said something interesting. There is writing and sitting alone by yourself with your computer, and well. In the beginning, I get we're writing on paper. Um, I was yeah. uh, I was using a chisel and uh, and a block of stuff. <laughs> but yeah, it later became a uh, typewriter. It later became a typewriter. Yes. Mm -hmm. So with the process, okay. So are you a disciplined writer? Do you get up every day and write, or do you write certain days for certain amount of hours, or? I, I get up every I get up every morning when it, like when I'm not on vacation or the day isn't full of other activities, right. which is almost all the time. I sit down, you know, usually by nine o'clock, and uh, work a couple hours in the morning and then a couple hours in the afternoon. Um, and it's it's just what I do. And if I'm between projects, then I will come up with something to fill in that time. Uh, you know, writing is is what I do. I get fulfillment from it, even if um, projects get canceled or you know certain books don't sell as well. Um, I get I get great pleasure out of the process. So um, uh, it's what I do. Mm -hmm. I I love the process of writing. I love um, the creativity and the ideas that come to you and. And just when you think, I mean, uh, some people say they have writer's block. Have you had writer's block? And if you have, like, how did you? I think writer's block comes from not being prepared for the next step oh. in, in uh, the process. Um, and um, which doesn't mean it's any less of a block. Um, but uh, when that occurs, then I know that, okay, I'm not prepared. I don't know what my hero, um, um, what he's doing next, or I haven't, um, I haven't figured out this part of the story, or I, ha or I haven't figured out this part of the emotional journey. Um, and so if I concentrate on that for a day or so, um, uh, usually I can overcome a writer's block. Um, one, phrase that I use and other people use is uh, having a story with good bones. Okay. If you have a story with a good structure, if you have with, with good bones, um, uh, then that will 
you can work within that. You can change this aspect and that aspect, but as long as the bones are all in place, then um, you can adapt and, and make it work. If you have like a faulty concept or um, a character that doesn't work, um, mm -hmm. then, uh, then, then it's a lot harder. But if the, if the bones are there, then, um, and you give it thought and you do your research and, um, you know, you get up in the middle of the night and write notes to yourself, um, yes. then, uh, then usually it can work and you can get through writer's block as long as the structure is there. And sometimes it's not there. Sometimes you just yeah. have to say, this is a failed concept and I'm going to move on to something else. Yeah, and maybe pick it back up another time. But, uh, you know, these, you said something interesting there, like, you know, in the middle of the night, writing it down, because when you get those ideas in the middle of the night, they're gone in the morning unless you record them. Yeah, and then, it, then you're so um, anxious about remembering the, the next morning. And that, that you don't sleep. Be sure to remember this. Be sure to remember that. It's just yeah. easier to have a notepad uh, either in your bathroom or beside your uh, bed to jot it down. Very good advice. Very good mm -hmm. advice. And I have, and I have one of those because you just never know, you could be just almost going to sleep in that hypnotic state and, and you start, you know, they have to wake your, you know, you know, wake yourself up a little bit to write. Do you ever dream that about a character uh, that it fills in the character for you? No, I, I don't think I've ever had that experience. Um, you know, I will often, as I said, as you're nodding off, think, oh, maybe uh, maybe she didn't cover this or maybe I yes. need to go back and redo a scene um, to make sure that the uh, viewer knows this or the reader knows that. Um, but I, I no, I have enough weird dreams that I don't need to <laughs> impose them on my characters. Uh huh. Yeah. Sometimes I dream. I I dream words, and hmm. uh, there are really neat sentences that I don't want to forget, and uh, and I'll write that down. Hmm. What is? Do you have a favorite book or series that you've written? Um. The, well, it's always the one that you're working on now. Yes. So the work I'm, I'm doing the Callie McPhee mysteries. And yes. I, um, and they're set in Austin, Texas. Nice. And uh, I wrote two of them before I ever visited Austin, Texas, uh, which is the wonder of Google and the wonder of having an editor. My editor is from, uh, spent a lot of time in Austin. Um, and, but we visited it for South by Southwest, which is a marvelous festival. Um, yes. and, uh, we'll probably go back again uh, this year or next year to the uh -huh. festival. Uh, and, uh, so the Kelly McPhee mysteries, I think, are really great. They're, they're kind of um, old school Texas versus um, kind of the new e e ethos. And the idea is this um, investigative reporter uh -huh. um, comes back home to try to make up with her father. She gets a job in Austin. And um, her father is like for decades has been the most important fixer uh, uh, in the state. Um, you know, he was secretary of state. Um, he had all sorts of different offices, uh, in Texas. And, um, he was the go-to guy to get problems solved. And, uh, now 
very secretly, um, she finds out that he is beginning, beginning to develop dementia. And so all these secrets that are in his brain from 20 years ago could spill out at, at any time. So he needs to keep this a secret. Meanwhile, she's trying to undo some of the damage that he might have done um, um, in cases that he's like half forgotten. Right. And um, so that's kind of the, the structure, the bones of uh, the Callie McPhee mysteries. And, you know, her father plays a major, major role in the first book and a slightly small role in book two and in book three, which I'm about halfway through writing. Um, yes. He um, is more of a tangential character and she kind of takes center stage. You know, I don't, I don't want to um, uh, use his dementia for... Um, I want to treat it seriously. There's a lot of humor in the book, but yes. you want to treat it realistically. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, he will have less of his mental capabilities as the series progress. And then at some point if the series goes on long enough, he will probably die. And um, she will uh, um, kind of take over the whole, the whole central core of the, uh, of the, of the series. Yeah. But it's now her and her father and then, you know, the other people who work with them. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. A beautiful concept. Well, we, we, uh, when I was working on the series Monk, some writer, I'm not sure it was me or someone else in the room, yes. wouldn't it be interesting if you had someone who had like all these secrets and then started to develop dementia? And so he would be a real threat to, you know, all the suspects because he knew their secrets and his mind was going and he could blurt them out at, at any time. Right. And so and that never worked into a monk episode because it was too, a little too dark. Okay. Um, because monk, monk is a very light show. It is. Uh, yes. And uh, so it was like an idea that was always in the back of my mind and, you know, I said it in Texas where there are a lot of, you know, a lot of politicking go on. It could have been, it could have been New York, but I wanted, I didn't want other, I didn't want other like major industries around. Like if it was set in LA, then film might be in there. If it was set in New York city, then you have all sorts of industries. And I wanted it sort of an isolated um, venue. Uh, and I thought Texas is sort of a world to itself. Um, and uh, so that's that's why I said it in a place I'd never been. Yes. Now, do you generally travel uh, to places um, to be inspired uh, with the book um, that you're writing? Well, I, I wrote an earlier series about a travel agent, um, yes. someone who goes, who takes people on exotic vacations and... Uh, and then you know murder always happens and i've been to all those locations and you know we we love to travel we uh, we travel a, a lot um like the week before covid we were in indonesia and uh yes. and then uh, as soon as it lifted we were uh, we went to other places so that's a big part of my life traveling and discovering new places not not in tour groups like in a week or so we're going to australia and we're getting a four by four um, like a, um, a land cruiser and driving across like the top part of Australia, going into the 
uh, Red Center and, uh, um, you know, places where mostly just Australians go, not a lot of American tourists. Yeah. And uh, uh, so you can, you can think of yourself as an explorer somehow, even though you are just a tourist, but you can you know, make believe yeah. that you're kind of discovering things. Yeah, sure. So when you travel and go to different places, do you set si time aside to write or do you bring a recorder with you? Like how I do you don't write. I don't write on trips. We did spend five months in New Zealand and um, right as we were leaving, I got a book contract, but it was a short ish book. And and we were there for five months. So I would, you know, get up and uh, every other day or so and and write a bit of that book and um, dot it in by the deadline. So <clears throat> it was fine. But usually as a rule, you know, you spend all this money and make all these plans to, you know, go to great places. Um, and, you know, when we travel, it's not a writer's retreat. It's, um, mm -hmm. you know, we're up every day and out seeing things and hiking. And uh, um, so, yeah, I, I put writing aside when I travel. Mm -hmm. Well, and, you know, uh, your brain needs the break and it revitalizes you as well. And so that when you get back to the computer, uh, you're you're like brand new, right? You have new ideas and. Yeah, um, maybe, but I, you know, there, there are only a few things I love and, you know, writing I love and traveling I love. Yes. And um, when, you know, if just sitting in the same place, doing the same thing day after day, month after month, you know, it gets boring. So breaking it up with, and you're, I guess you're right. You do sort of feel, revitalize it's not as though you're doing the same thing yeah. every day for you know six months in a row mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I yeah I've done a lot of writing uh, when I've been away and mm -hmm. um, I, I lost something really valuable uh, I uh, when I was 34 I flew fixed wing over the Grand Canyon terrified I had claustrophobia and they put me in the seat at the back um, I was one of the people that, you know, clapped when we landed and we, we saw the other planes and they just looked like bees, you know, when you're up in the air like that. Mm -hmm. But I, I was flying over the Grand Canyon. I was looking at all the layers of evolution and all of a sudden, all this information was coming to me and I wasn't a writer at the time I wrote, wrote letters to people but I wasn't a writer so I didn't have anything to record it um didn't have a pen and paper and things like that and by the time we got back to the hotel of course it was gone and I have no idea but it was amazing what was coming into my brain <laughs> so... <laughs> it sounds like an acid trip it sounds like you were on an acid trip well no, it wasn't an acid trip for sure. I've never <laughs> taken acid, but, you know, I always, you know, think about that because there are energy vortexes in the world where, and that's one of the energy vortexes is over the Grand Canyon um, mm. that uh, you can actually experience uh, these types of things. And, uh, but most often um, my brain just creates and I just have learned to uh, keep uh, something with me uh like a little um just a little tiny book to carry around and just mm -hmm. if i can like just write a few things down 
I'll be able to reconstruct it when I get back to my computer. Um, I love talking to you and the process that you uh, go through. I, I, I'm just amazed by it because, you know, I do different things and my, my vacation is writing. So when I wake up on a Saturday morning or anything like that, and I'm just like, I'm going to write today, but uh, I find that the by I do my best writing on a deadline, you know, a mm-hmm. chapter four book, or you know, something like that. Then I do my best writing at that time because I make I'm it forces me to um, ignite my craft and to um, just just sit in really. Uh, I mean, the, do you feel that you've been I'm going to kind of reverse this a little bit. Do you feel that you've been you've been called to do this or do you feel that you've crafted it or a bit of both? Um, I remember being very young and going to movies um, and coming home. And I guess a lot of kids are like this. And you tell the plot to your parents or to whomever. But I was always very focused on what I thought was a good story. And I would, you know, tell it over and over again. Yeah, this happened in the movie and then that that happened. And yeah. he didn't know it, but this was really going on behind him. And um so I would I, I think yeah, looking back that I was always wanted to tell stories. And uh, um there's a um uh I, I think as part of my legacy um I'm going to be leaving some money to um, a, uh, a uh, literary seminar that will have some classes and some lectures uh, focused on the art of storytelling and how to tell a good story. Yes, yes. I mean, and that's how uh, humans have re- evolved is through tele- uh, storytelling. Yeah, um, the, you know, we, the name Homer, the Iliad and the and the Odyssey, um, um, historians now concur that there was no person named Homer, that um, that these stories evolved as poems, and poems are much easier to memorize than yes. prose um, yes. because of the meter. Um, I'm not sure they had rhyme um, back at that point, but the, the meter and, and, and the structure of poetry um, made it easier to memorize. So um, over perhaps uh, hundreds or a thousand years, the story of, um, um, of the Odyssey, uh, the story of the Iliad and the you know, fall of Troy um, became these lengthy poems passed on from one entertainer or one person to another. And they would embellish them, they would. And then at some point, um, the Greeks wrote them down and at, put the name Homer on them. So, um, you know, when you read uh, the Iliad, you are reading something that generations and generations of people created. And Mm -hmm. uh, that's kind of magical. It's very magical. Well, and I think the whole thing is magical. I think that writing is magical and and poems and and all of those things. I mean, I, I, I just love reading 
um, all of those things. You're listening to the Rhonda Grant Show right now, whose podcast has been treated with digital audio health by my sponsor, Symatrax. And today we are speaking with Hi Conrad. How may people reach out to you if they wanted to find out more and more about uh, the books that you write? Um, I do have a website. It's uh, highconrad.com, which is easy to remember, one hopes. Uh, and uh, um, then I have a um, I have a Facebook group as well. But the easiest way to find out <clears throat> what I've done and what I'm doing currently is to go to highconrad.com. Wonderful. What is the favorite piece that you have written? A book? Um, you know, a lot of stuff that one writes is successful. Uh, some of it is not successful. Yes. Some never sees the light of day, but you still think it's great. You know, I've, um, there have been times in which I've pitched a, um, uh, a series to a network and they will pay me to write um, a draft of it. And then if they like the draft enough, then they will film it, um, you know, film the pilot. Um, yes. So there have been one or two cases in which I've written something. Uh, the, uh, Steve Martin um, uh, and I wrote um, a pilot together many years ago. Uh, it was a mystery. And this was obviously years before he wrote Only Murders in the Building. Yes. Um, but it was, it was kind of a light mystery. And uh, it was... Uh, called Mr. and Mr. North. I think that was, or Mr. and Mr. Nash. And uh, the idea was that with these two gay interior decorators who were a couple and they would go. And so they knew all the houses of these rich people in New York. And when there, when a murder occurred, they, you know, they knew enough about these homes and about the interior design about, Oh, someone replaced this carpet. You can tell. Um, oh yes, <laughs> that they would um, figure out uh, the uh, figure out the murder, and uh, uh, so we wrote a pilot for ABC, and we loved it. But, but uh, ABC passed on it, and it never got filmed. Alan Cumming was uh, was set to uh, um, be one of the uh, leads. Um, so you know, projects like that um, are often my favorite because you have this image of them in your mind about how if it was perfectly crafted, if it was perfectly, you know, done by the actors that, um, you know, it feels like a lost opportunity when, when it doesn't happen. Yes. And, and uh, did you pitch to a different network or? Um, no, I think at that point, um, because they paid us to write the pilot. Oh, um, right. It, that was it, it. It, it was, it was, it was their property. Yeah, um, that's right. And uh, so, yeah, it never went on from there. And, you know, these things happen and they, uh, you know, now we're in the midst of a writer's strike. And uh, so that's um, even more upheaval. Mm -hmm. And have you experienced a writer's strike be before? Yeah, in 2007, we were working on Monk. And yes. uh, I, I actually lost a, a series of my own due to the writer's strike. I had um pitched and sold a series they were very excited about it um the network i won't mention which network mm -hmm. um the writer strike lasted 
almost four months. And, you know, a week before the strike or a week or two before the strike, the network cut off communication. I didn't hear from them. We were, you know, I had already been released from my monk contract. Um, uh-huh. And, you know, so we were all poised. They cut off communication. You know, four months later, we, my agent goes back to them and they said, um, uh, uh, so, you know, we were kind of changing direction here at the network and we're not sure we want to do the show anymore. But um, so, um, you know, a strike does cost you things, you know, and it's not just, you know, people lose work. I mean, I didn't lose any work on Monk because we came right back after four months and we went back to work and we made up for lost time. But, um, you know, people do lose out because they're standing up for these, uh, for what they think they deserve. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there any um, thing that you're particularly proud of that you've worked on that didn't come to fruition? Well, I mean, there's a series I did with, um, uh, well, uh, with Steve, Steve Martin, and then mm-hmm. there, there are always other ones. Um, you know, I, um, I have a couple projects that, that my agent is now selling, but of course that has all been cut off because agents can talk to producers anymore i mean right. all communication is cut off during during a, a strike you can't you can't send anyone a script um you know it's all cut off and so there are a couple of things that i'm working on on that i've finished i have uh, i wrote a rom-com which has gotten some uh interest but i we can't communicate with anyone right now about it um you know i'm very proud of monk Obviously, yes, I was, I was yes. there from the very beginning. Yeah. Um, what had happened was uh, Andy Breckman, who's still a great friend, uh, uh, wrote Monk. Um, they took a lot, a lot of time to find Tony Shalhoub um, and to make sure he was right for the role. And mm-hmm. um, it, it was an involved process. And then the studio says... Um, this is great. All right, we're going to do it. You, you need 15 more episodes for the season. And Andy was a comedy writer. He was not a um, mystery writer. So he mm-hmm. kind of panicked. He went to a bookstore. He found my books. He <clears throat> tracked me down, called me up. Yes. And um, basically said, um, you know, I love your stories. And either I'm going to steal them or you're going to come work for me. <laughs> and uh so what did you say <laughs> i said i'll come work for you yes and uh so i was um i was probably the second person he he hired he hired his brother mm-hmm. uh, uh and uh, then he hired me and then uh he hired someone else that that he uh knew in uh, uh the, in the new york area and uh we sort of became the core team and did it for eight seasons and uh and you know and all the actors brought so much wonderful stuff to it. Yes. And right now in Toronto, they are filming uh, the Monk movie. Okay. And there's a movie. And, uh, some, I guess I can real, reveal the name. It's called Mr. Monk's Last Case. Yes. Uh, it's being filmed right now in uh, Toronto. So, And I, I, did some, I did a little consulting on that. And it, it's, a, it's a great script. And 
Tony Shalhoub's there and, um, you know, Jason and uh, Trailer and uh, Ted Levine are, mm-hmm. are all up there. So they have the old, they have the old team together again. Awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, what a great project to be part of. Yeah, and uh, um, yeah. So as far as like career moments, I, I think um, I think that was probably a, a real, real highlight. I'm so glad that he went to the bookstore and liked my stuff and tracked me down. That was all <clears throat> very lucky. Yeah. Well, right there, that's a great story. Um, you know that he actually did that. And, yeah. and that's how he found you and you were so thrilled and you're available to, to work on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's- and, you know, originally I came on as a, uh, as, as a consultant, as a story consultant. And then every year I would get a promotion or two. And for the last couple of seasons, I was the co-executive producer. And then we went on to do a, a webisode series of Little Monk which I was the uh, um, uh, executive producer on. Um, so yeah, it was really a very fast learning experience, learning how to write for TV because I had never done it before. Wow, it just seems like it's a once in a lifetime opportunity that you realize that it was going to be important. Yeah, yeah. It, um, you know, I, I love, they, uh, he had the pilot already done and uh, mm-hmm. so uh, I went to New York to meet with him because I didn't live in New York at the time. Um, okay. I went to meet with him and he showed me like the first <clears throat> five minutes of it. And um, at one point, I guess I kind of made a face and then he stops the tape. Yes. Says, what? What? Y- yeah. What, what kind I of do? face? <laughs> and we just kinda, yeah. Uh, kind of. Yeah. Uh, mm, okay. Yeah. And he said, you have a better clue here, don't you? You have a better clue in mind. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it, yeah, this, this, I think, would, would have been a uh, more uh, a more clever clue. And yes. Said, Damn, I should have done that. Damn, you're right. And um, yes. uh, so uh, um, I think that kind of sealed the deal that uh, he knew I was the right person to hire. Yes. I, I love that. And I love being with musicians that take that command too and say, no, 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 that's not it. It's this, right? Mm-hmm. And right. Uh, so you really commanded the authority because what your, what your input was made a difference. And yeah. if you can just make that difference in a short period of time, well, look what you did with it. I mean, I, I loved it. I watched a couple of the seasons. I, I, or I, I really liked it. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, we still have a big fan base and, uh, um, you know, I still got uh, nice residual checks from uh, every place that it's being shown around the world. Uh, and there's, uh, they, as far as I know, uh-huh. these things, these things change. But uh, as far as I know, I will be the representative, the consultant um, when they do a version of, they're redoing all the monk TV shows in India for a Hindi audience. Right. And, uh, okay. Um, I wondered. I, I wondered. Be, I will yeah. be going over. The plan is for me to go over to uh, um, Bollywood and to be on set when they film uh, a monk in uh, Hindi. So the monk is still 
you know, captivating audiences. And, uh, you know, and it's been done in Turkey. They did the same thing in Turkey. I was not part of that production. Uh, and now they're doing it in India. And I love India. We've been there several times. So. I love you. Uh, excuse me? Oh, you have been to India several times? Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, we have. And we absolutely love it. It's a wonderful country. The people are terrific. Um, and uh, um, so it would be great to do it. And to do it not as a tourist, but to do it as part of like a working Bollywood set I think to be really interesting. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask you if it was in different languages, and um, it, it it was. It's funny. Be uh, it's often done with subtitles. Um, yes. Remember one time, and uh, sometimes it's done in in they they dub it. I know in France they dub it, in Germany they uh, dub yeah. it. Um, I was once on. This is going to sound weird. I was once on a little boat. You no. Know, maybe 10 people uh, on the Amazon river in, wow. <laughs> in, in Peru. And you would pass by these shacks um, and people had electricity. People had, um, you know, um, um, satellites. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, I heard um, uh, Tony Shalhoub and uh, Ted Levine um, uh, talking and uh, someone had, in a little shack along the Amazon River, had uh, tuned in an episode of Monk, and uh, um, so you know I came back and told everyone that uh, I heard them in the middle of the Amazon rainforest, and uh, um, so yeah, it's it's popular all over. Wow, that must be an incredible feeling that your work is that far-reaching. Um, and you know, I, you know, every now and then I'll meet someone and I'll tell them what I do and what I've done. And they say, Oh, you're famous. And I say, no, no, I've worked on things that have become famous. Um, oh. but you know, um, it, it, it's not, especially in TV, there's so many people. If we had anyone other than Tony Shalhoub, uh, doing that role, it would not have been successful. And, yeah. you know, another hire, uh, another actor was actually hired before Tony. Uh -huh. They did a little bit of filming and then they realized that he wasn't the right choice. And then they waited out until Tony was available. Um, so, you know, there are many ways in which the show could not have worked. Um, you know, the original idea was a more serious idea. Um, uh -huh. The original idea was there was a Jack Nicholson character from As Good As It Gets. Yes. Who had OCD and was, uh, I think, a novelist or, or, or and um, is hard to get along with and uh, um, a real curmudgeon with OCD. And um, someone in L.A. walked out of the theater and said, what if this guy was a cop? Would that be a good thing? And so um, he wound up taking the idea to Andy Breckman and Andy um, worked his magic on it. And I think with any other writer, it would have been a darker um, idea. Okay. It would, the, the character would not have been as sympathetic. Um, there would not have been the humor, uh, you know, because, uh, I mean, there's, there is humor in As Good As It Gets, but it's more... It's much more character driven. Um, yes. And uh, but, uh, you know, so 
all these things made it a hit. And my contribution, I'm very much into plot structure um, and to make a, you know, everyone remembers the comedy moments from Monk, but what held all the comedy moments together was the plot structure. Yes. And the, um, we were very proud that there would be no drop off during uh, an episode, you know, the networks can tell when people change their channel halfway through or turn off the TV halfway through. Um, and the only episode that we ever did that had a little bit of a drop off was one, the only episode we wrote that didn't have a murder in it. Oh. It had, there was a missing chair uh, and someone was kidnapped and, uh, um, uh, and but there was no murder, and I and we kind of learned our lesson that okay, not only do you have to have a strong plot, but you have to have some stakes. You have to have something that's really at stake in it. And um, so we uh, we included murders from then on, and um, so that kind of what gives importance to a story, what what makes a person scratch his head, you know, if you have. One of our plus is um, we had someone on death row. He was going to be executed in half an hour, in an hour. Mm-hmm. He's, given, he's given his last meal and his last meal was poisoned. So who would poison someone who's just about to be executed? Um, I don't know. <laughs> who would? <laughs> and I want to so, know. <laughs> and well, that was a, that was what we were given. You know, yeah. how do you do this? And we came up with like three or four plausible plots. Um, We assigned it to a writer um, who was a guest writer. She came in for a week and we we talked through the outline with her. She went home and she wrote it. She turned it back in and we said, you know, there's probably a better story here. This doesn't quite hold together. Mm -hmm. And so the, the rest of the team actually wrote the episode. It was under her name because that was her contract. Right. So I think she may be the only writer who was surprised when she saw her show on TV and didn't know who the killer was. And it's something that she, you know, had her name on as being the writer. Um, yes. So we, we paid a lot of attention to make sure that the stories, even though people <clears throat> remember the comedy bits, um, um, I, I think it was the actual structure that uh, held the show together. Oh, yes, for sure. For sure. What extraordinary discovery have you found in your life? Um, when I first started working in TV, um, I was very impressed that people could work so hard on something. Um, and, you know, like a set designer building a, a, a great set and um then the show gets canceled after four episodes and all of his drawings and all of his work is gone. Mm-hmm. And the next day that artist is up and on to the next thing, yeah. that kind of recovery, that kind of, um, he wasn't phoning it in. He, I mean, all these people are not phoning it in. They're, they're doing great work. They're doing work they could really be proud of. And then when it disappears, there's no 
you know, shedding of tears or, you know, wrapping up clothes or being acrimonious for the next six months because yeah. you were treated unfairly or this didn't work out. It's like, okay, it's fulfilled itself. I'm on to the next thing. And that really amazed me that people could be so dedicated and yes. then if something fails, then they go on to the next thing right away. And to me, that was like a life lesson. It is a life lesson uh, for whatever you're doing. And it really shows strength of character because it's so easy uh, to become discouraged and just say, I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. Like this is, you know, BS, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so it's great uh, testament of character that people can just cut that off and say, okay, now we're going to do this and we just have to leave that alone. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. it's, hard, it's hard to do because artists put uh, their whole, um, the essence of who they are into their work. Mm -hmm. They really do. And that, and that in a way is a reward in itself. The, yes. the idea of creating something. And even if, you know, if, you know, tens of millions of people see it, terrific. If no one sees it, you still had the experience of doing it, um, which to me is fulfilling in and of itself. Oh, yes. I, I was working on a project recently, which I won't name, um, in which every day there were new notes. Um, and I would come up with, you know, notes that seemed incompatible with each other. So I would, um, you know, work feverishly and then turn in a new draft and then hear no praise at all for what I had done. No. But they would, have, they would have new notes, sometimes contradicting what they told me the week before. Yeah. And it got very frustrating. Mm -hmm. um, and but if I thought of it as, you know, I have friends who do Sudoku, who do Wordle, you know, who challenge themselves with crossword puzzles every day. So, you know, it's a couple hours out of the day and they're solving a puzzle. And, you know, and then the next day there's a new puzzle. Yeah. So I started to think of it in that sense that, all right, I'm solving this puzzle. Yeah. And people who get Wordle or Sudoku, uh, you know, don't go looking for world acclaim. It's a puzzle that they solve and they get satisfaction out of that work, out of that, you know, <clears throat> creative or discovery process of solving a puzzle every day. So I thought of it like, this is my word all the day. I'm spending, you know, four or five hours a day. Yes. You know, trying to solve these plot points. And if I get rewarded or if I don't get rewarded or if someone sees it, there is satisfaction in doing the work. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's, it's a process. Um, as a human being, it's a process to let go of the outcome. Yeah, you're just doing this work. And you just have to let go of whatever happens, that happens. However, many times they send it back, you're just going to keep at it. And I really like that analogy, because um, we sometimes, you know, people say, well, you have to get out of your own way. Well, there's a perfect example that you do have to set yourself aside, right? 
mm-hmm. that side of you that wants to be, you know, frustrated and, um, you know, just want to maybe even give up and people do give up. Um, so that's a great analogy. This is just a puzzle. <laughs> you know, it's just a puzzle. And I, I, I just, I love the way your brain thinks. I mean, it's fantastic. It's such great teaching uh, for our audience um, that uh, that's interested. It really is. It's life lessons. And, and we're always learning life lessons. And uh, so I appreciate that. <laughs> is there anything that you'd like to talk about that we that I haven't asked you? Um, I don't think so. Um, you know, I began writing books of short mysteries, you know, many, many years ago for, for kids. Yes. Um, and yes, yes. I think I have 11 or 12 of them out there. I'm now discussing a contract for a new one, which, you know, if it happens during the writer's strike, that, that'll be nice. It'll keep me occupied. Um, I don't know. I think it's, um, I think valuing a story um, is what I do and, and, and what I like. Um, and I think uh, not, I mean, we all have regrets. Oh, uh, yes. In, in, in life, but, you know, there's always, uh, there's always a new day. Um, and, uh, and I think not holding on to those regrets. Um, I have a lot of friends who will tell me the same story, you know, in, 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 in groups at parties, tell me the same story about something that happened to them and, mm-hmm. uh, and they, and they still get angry, you know, years after it, it happened. Yeah. And, um, I think, uh, letting go leaves your hands free to grab onto something else. Yes, it does. And I, and, and sometimes I think that um, that story becomes part of their personality and they can't let it go because they want to tell as many people as possible. And, and I don't, I wouldn't know what the reason would be. They'd be different and vary depend on depending on who you're speaking with. But sometimes people live their life in those stories because it makes up their personality. Mm-hmm. And I actually, some years ago, read a really fascinating um, kind of autobiography uh, called, I think, I think it's called The Night of the Gun. Mm-hmm. And it's about this. Um, he was a well-known writer for, for the, the New Yorker, and he was a functioning alcoholic and drug addict for years and years and um, had vivid memories about the low point in which he showed up at a friend's doorstep, um, you know, begging for drugs or begging for money. And his friend pulled a gun on him and said, you know, get out of here. I don't want to see you again. So when he was in recovery, he went to the friend and he says, you know, I have this vivid memory of coming up here and you, you know, pulling a gun and telling me to get away. And, um, you know, and that kind of helped change my life. And mm-hmm. the friend said, um, you were the one with a gun. Oh. I didn't have the gun. You had the gun. You're remembering this wrong. And the act of memory 
changes. Um, and every time you remember something, he, he wound up doing research on, on, on how memory works. And every time you remember something, you're not remembering the original. You're remembering the last time you remembered it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are things in which I'm sure I remember vividly um, that didn't happen quite the way because I'm remembering the last time I told the story or I'm remembering the last time that I remembered the story. I'm not, I, uh, the mind isn't capable of actually flashing back to the event itself. Mm-hmm. And so if you have something that you resent or a story that you've told 50 times, it changes because it does, yeah. because you're remembering the last time you remembered it, which I thought was really a fascinating glimpse into the way the mind works. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, just uh, recently, uh, I was uh, to lunch. I went to lunch with a group of ladies, and this one person said to me, "Oh, Rhonda, tell the story about," and I started telling the story, and she was amazed at how much I had filled in the story since she had last, <laughs> she had last heard it. And she really, she really liked the story this time <laughs> and said that I was a great storyteller. So it depends on what you're telling. Right. And of course I was telling something really funny and I had, you know, had everybody in stitches and I just love that, you know, a performer always loves, you know, when mm-hmm. they're appreciated and, um, but yeah, isn't that interesting? And what a great plot for a movie or a novel that he mm-hmm. was the one with the gun. Like I, yeah, well, I it's, never... a little bit like, it's a little bit like Memento where he has no memory of like the previous right. day and has to right, yeah. make markings on himself in order to, uh, in order to remember. And the um, memory can be very malleable. So. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, it sure can be. I really enjoyed our conversation. I think that we could talk quite a bit longer. Um, So I really thank you very much for spending time uh, talking about what you love and what you do and giving an insight to our audience who uh, may have writing in their life right now and and wondering, um, you know, the process and, and all those things. So I really appreciate having you on the show. It was so delightful to listen to you and yeah thank you very much well thank thank you Rhonda it's been a pleasure theme song for the Rhonda Grant show is Sun on the Water composed and performed by my friend John Park Wheeler this is Rhonda Grant with the Rhonda Grant show author of Magical Forces Within Extraordinary Discoveries in an Ordinary Life inviting you to look for the magical forces within yourself today and every day Thanks for tuning in to the Rhonda Grant Show with your host, Rhonda Grant. If you would like to find out more information about Rhonda and her upcoming guests and the work that she does, go to her website, rhondagrantauthor.com. That's rhondagrantauthor.com. Digital Audio Health by Cymatrax.